tree was all the same I was under the sky, no new horizons Maybe there is no one else to Hello and welcome back to the Campbell's Footballs podcast with myself, Dr. Grant Campbell. Uh, I'm joined for this episode by a goalkeeper who had a, a, a big spell in Scotland, but has also gone on to do coaching, journalism and a range of other things. It is former Aberdeen goalkeeper David Priest. David, a warm welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Grant. Real pleasure. How have you been coping with COVID-19? Because it's been a really strange time, hasn't it? It's been pretty mental across the world, really. Yeah, it has. It's. I mean, it's affected us. Um, it's affected us a lot. Just because it's it, initially over in Oster Suns, it, it delayed the start of the season, and, um, and and even though there hasn't been the same restrictions in Sweden as there has been here, there's been no lockdown. I think it's, you know, it's it's still part of everyday life, and it, it's really affected the way that we've we've trained as well. Because um, you know, the likes of um, for before training sessions. Uh, the guys aren't allowed to to, drip, uh, to go to the change rooms together. Everyone has to come come to the stadium already um, dressed for training, and any gym sessions are done outside on the on the pitch. And so we've had to adapt to it. And there's lots of protocols that were, you know, regardless of what anybody's saying about our oh, Sweden have just, um, you know, kind of just being free and easy with it and just letting it take its course. It's far from it, really. Mm-hmm. You know, people over there have been. You know, adhering to social distancing, there's still all the the different protocols that we have that you have here in in the uh, in the UK, and um, yeah, we've just we've just had to adapt to it. You know, especially with, mm-hmm. with no fans in the stadium as well. It's amazing how how we've all adapted to that. Mm-hmm. You know, how strange for the first couple of games, and then then really after that, it's 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 just everyone's just adapted and, and, and being as normal, but. For us at uh, Oster Sunday, yeah, we, we've we've had a few cases amongst the players and um, who've tested positive, and uh, including myself. Yeah. Uh, a few weeks back, so it's um, we've been looking in the respect where there's, there's nobody's been um, touch wood, nobody's been too affected by it uh, physically. But it's um, yeah, just from my own experience, I know it's. You know, it's, it's no joke, you know. Yeah, well, first of all, I want to offer my best wishes to you. I hope you get back to full strength soon because uh, coronavirus is, is such a, a horrible situation that we're living in indirectly, but also directly, as you've had of experience. So I really want to wish you well in your recovery and also to the players at Ostersons who uh, have also tested positive or have had to self-isolate because of such circumstances. In terms of the testing over in Sweden, how different has that been in comparison to Scotland? Show how it's been done in, in Scotland or, or England, really. But I know that it's been from the very beginning when there was, you know, quite a lot of cases. Um, testing was um, really accessible. I know that you know I've actually I've been I'm, I'm back in there, you know after my recovery and I had a negative test. I was able to come back home and, and to recover a little bit more simply because it was just. For my, for me, the symptoms were just a, a really. Uh, I was really fatigued. You know, I couldn't get out of bed and just sleeping all the time. And um, so, I, you know, luckily it hasn't been too serious for myself. But it's from a testing point of view. Yeah, tests were really accessible. Um, you know, for the last couple of months, we've uh, we've been tested once a week at the at the club. Yeah, and uh, we've had uh, 
the infection department from the from the hospital have actually been visiting us once a week. They're coming in and test us twice. We have like a quick test which takes 15 minutes for them to they get results back once they get back to the the labs, and then they have the obviously the I can't remember the, the name of it, but it's a, what the results you get back a couple of days later, which mm-hmm. is a bit more um, a little bit more accurate mm-hmm. than the quick tests, but. We all, we've also had, um, you know, just to show what the testing is like. You know, it's. I think we were, we were told it was like 70 percent accurate. Yeah. You know, so we, we have had some, um, a couple of false positives mm-hmm. where you know second tests have proved that it's that they, ha- they haven't uh, they haven't had it. So yeah. it's yeah, it's it's not ideal in the run up to games either. You know, absolutely. We're, we're testing midweek and then getting results back sometimes the the day before games and. Mm-hmm having to readjust at the last minute as well so it, it throws a little bit of chaos that way well, as well. Uh, you make a really great point and we've already seen in Scotland the situation with the Sibirin goalkeeping uh, situation and obviously yeah. the incident that happened with Kilmarnock and all their team having to isolate and have their match postponed against Motherwell so it is happening all the time and it's ever evolving and it, as you say it really does wreak havoc with plans and preparations for matches yeah but I, I know that you know that obviously I watch the, the, the news back here and what's going on and they, you know, everyone's talking about the testing and, you know, access to testing and and that's the one big thing, you know, if you want to look for a big difference between Sweden and, uh, and the UK, like I said, you know, you, you can generally find that, you, you know, you just go online, book your appointment in one of the, the health centres uh, around uh, around the city where I am in Ostersund and then, you know, you, you generally get it within, the, you know, you, Get an appointment either the next day or, the, or two days later, and it's uh, and it, it's like I said, it's pretty accessible and easy, and you get results, you know, in two or three days. Yeah. But it's like I said, I've missed three games now this season, um, you know, you know because of the positive test and, and the recovery as well. So yeah, it's. Um, it's been a bit of a nuisance really yeah well we'll talk about some Swedish football later on in this podcast I'm really interested to talk about Ostersunds as a club in itself but uh, really great to have you on the show David and as I said I'll reiterate again I really hope you get back to, to full fitness very soon but it's really interesting to, to speak with you I'm really looking forward to chatting to you about your career I always like to ask my guests on Campbell's Football's very first question um, in terms of your route into football what was your sort of incentives or the kind of I, the kind of dangling carrot that lured that lured you into football. I probably have to go back to my dad. You know, um, my dad was um, he was a centre half originally, and um, you know when he was sort of uh, 16, 17 um, he was um, he was supposed to go down to, to Derby in Sanford Derby, and then um, uh, he broke his leg uh, quite badly and. At, at that point, you know, once he recovered, he made the decision. To, you know, he wasn't going to pursue football anymore, and he got uh, got engaged to my mother, and then and then my sister came along, and he, he turned himself into a goalkeeper. And um, and it is, I mean, obviously as long as long as I've known him, he, he was a goalkeeper, and pretty good goalkeeper, especially sort of like. Um, Local leagues, like you know, if you think of the the northern league in um, in the northeast, it's it's a pretty competitive uh, division, and it's a re- and it was and still is a really good standard. But really, back then, it was a really good standard, and yeah, that was the level my dad got to play as a goalkeeper. So that's all I ever knew, and from as old as I could go and watch as I'm 
know, when I got old enough to go and watch him. And that was pretty much my uh, my Saturday afternoons until I started playing myself. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, going around all you know, there's a place called Tunstall Hill in there. Uh, in Sunderland, people around Sunderland will know what it is, and it's literally, you know, it, it could be 25 degrees down the bottom of this hill, and all the pitches on top of it. You go up there, and it'd be totally different, totally different climate. And um, yeah, that, that's that's my first memory, just kicking a ball about the side of um, the side of the pitch while my, while my dad was playing, watching my dad playing. And from then on, I had no real other um, other thought other than. I wanted to be a, a footballer. That's all I ever wanted. To be. I'm glad you mentioned the North East leagues because I've had Jeff Winter on the show, former football referee in England, and he was talking about that and how it sort of got him into refereeing from an early age. So I was really interested to just hear that comparisons with yourself. And as he says, and you elaborate as well, a very competitive league to, to kick start. Yeah, they were. I mean, even when I was a kid, even uh, Sunday football was so competitive. You know, a lot of the players who were playing at a really good level on a Saturday, then they'd be playing for the Sunday teams um, on a Sunday morning, and that's I know that in the northeast that's died away a lot for for various reasons. But um, yeah, the, the, you know, just watching watching my dad going on even playing on a Sunday for his team, uh, which was great, a team called Grangetown Forest. You know, following them and them going to like to. Get to the last stages and finals of the the All England Cup on a on a Sunday, you know. It was, uh, yeah, it was a real good experience. And, and more than anything, being around a dressing room environment, you know, because I'm like, um, I remember, you know, one of the first times it, it was in amongst everyone. They're all getting changed. You get the this the smell of all, like the, the the you know the um, the liniment that used to rub on the legs, keep the legs warm, and. Um, and it, like I said, it was a real education simply because, you know, you... Sensential memories, sensory memories. Yeah, that, that's what they were like, you know, and it was, um, you, you've been around all, it's, it's freezing outside, the dressing rooms are freezing as well, you've got a smell of the liniment, and it was really, um, you know, then you, you're in, in the dressing room and like, I remember like some of, some of his friends, you know, they're talking to you as if you're uh, a lot older than what you are. And um, and kind of like I know uh, I've not really be, always been outgoing. I was quite shy as a kid, um, but I think that brought sort of brought me out, brought me out myself because it was it was kind of like oh they know who I was, but say oh who are you? And I'd say oh my name's David, and say you don't say it. You're not David. You say I'm David. I'm Priestley's son. <laughs> and it was kind of like trying to bring you out of yourself, like you know, trying sort of. Instead of being all shy, like you know, answer them as, as if you're on the same level. It was, yeah, it was a real education. Yeah, absolutely. And and coming from the the tunes are part of England, a fantastic area of England, I may add. Who were your inspirations and idols? Because you know that area of England is synonymous with Newcastle, Sunderland, etc. Were some, were there some of your connections, or were or there more general ones? I mean, initially, the um, the first team I ever remember watching was was Liverpool. And I know everyone thinks that this um, it's like a, f- a modern phenomenon of, of, of uh, wherever you live, but there's still people who support Manchester United or Liverpool or whatever because they're the successful teams at the, at the time. But simply because they were the ones that were I watched on TV. I remember watching some of the early 80s European Cup finals, sitting there with my dad watching it. You know, 
so before I went to actually went to watch Sunderland, which are, which are my team, you know, those were the teams. Uh, that was the team that I, I watched the most, and and out of that was uh, Bruce Gobbler was became sort of my, my real first hero, sort of him, Kenny Daglish, and uh, and. and I really sort of latched on to Bruce Gobbler and he kind of, because he was different, because he wasn't the same as everyone else and, you know, he had this reputation of being a bit of a clown, you know, he just got my attention. Yeah. And and that's, I think that's where it started off, uh, not only my dad about wanting to be a goalkeeper, but also the the thing of wanting to be different and not be wanting to be the same as everyone else. Yeah. That was a big attraction for me to, uh, to want to become a goalkeeper. But then, obviously, from then on, um, because my dad, w- my, my dad's always had pubs and clubs, so it was it was wasn't always um, he didn't always have the opportunity to take me along to Sunderland games because he was working or whatever. But you know, in the in the mid eighties, Sunderland got a sort of we got a Wembley in nineteen eighty five in the League Cup final against Norwich, or unfortunately that they lost. Got to to playoff finals and uh, FA Cups in in nineteen ninety two, and it was. Those are all the games that I, I really remember. But from from being old enough to go to the game myself, I was a season ticket holder at Sunderland, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, and those sort of mid to late eighties wasn't a great time for Sunderland. Not that there's, there's been many good times. <laughs> Not at the moment, anyway. Yeah, we'll come on to that in a minute. The, when Laurie McMenemy was in charge, the, you know, brought in a lot of experienced players and. A lot of really good players who, you know, it just shows you how small a football uh, world football is. That I go and watch someone like David Hodgson play for Sunderland, sort of like 1985-86, and then it was somebody who came on. Uh, you know, he was became a massive influence in my career mm-hmm. uh, as being manager at Darlington, and, and subsequently, you know, he's always been there for for the, a little bit of advice that I've needed along the way. So it was, um, but it was really around the 87, 88 season when they win. I think it was 87, 88 when they win the, uh, the third tier as they are now. Yeah. But it was, um, you know, the, the Marco Gabbiadini again shows how, how such a small world it is. Marco Gabbiadini was probably the first hero that I had at, um, uh, from Sunderland. You know, he, electric pace, scored loads of goals and. Um, went on to have a good career at Crystal Palace and Derby and I ended up playing with him at Darlington superb you know, superb it was just and that was the madness of football for me especially in teenage years all these players that I grew up idolising mm-hmm. and I end up in the same dress room as them you know yeah. at Sunderland and at Darlington yeah fantastic and we'll come on to talk, we'll talk about Sunderland now because obviously that's where you started your youth career when you're starting out your career at a huge club like Sunderland because even though they are in League One they're still a huge club what was that like for you? I mean it was it was the only club that I ever really wanted to sign for you know I said um, back then you couldn't sign for a club until you turn until uh, your 13th birthday and so from from then on I went on and you know, every school holiday, I was never at home. I was always training with the club somewhere, and um, I'd, I'd made um, me and my dad had, had made a, a real sort of um, uh, sort of real uh, de- uh, decision just to not to rush into anything. So uh, you know, I had a lot of 
there's a lot of big clubs that um, that that I went to train with, and I was at the Manchester uh, at the Manchester United School of Excellence um, between 13 and 15, and, <clears throat> and and that was a big decision not to go and sign for them, obviously because of who they are and. And the start that you're giving, you're giving in football life, education-wise. But it was always a case of I just want to go and get them. Or me, and my dad decided we wanted to get the of the best sort of education. And to do that, we thought was to go and train with as many people as possible. So there was regular sides who I'd, I'd play for uh, Middlesbrough on a Sunday, um, but I'd never signed for them. Um, I said I'll go to Manchester United most holidays, Ipswich. I went went down there quite a lot, Aston Villa. Um, but at the end of the day, there really was only t- one team that I wanted to sign for. Yeah. And what I wanted to do was, to, well, I was just waiting really for them to, to ask me to sign. Yeah. And, uh, and that, I mean that didn't happen until I was fifteen. And it's, looking back now, it's probably a brave decision not to you know to turn turn down a lot of these clubs and wait for someone to, to come in for me but mm-hmm. it was uh, yeah it, 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 it was the right decision because like I said it, for me football is emotion and um, and to have that emotional link with Sunderland it was um, it, it was the perfect scenario for me to go and sign for them and, and really follow my dream because that's all I, even when I was 15, 16 and, and I'd signed for Sunderland I, I was still mm-hmm. If I was kicking the ball about, I'd still be pretending I was captain of Sunderland, and mm-hmm. you know what I mean. They're having these, they seem like delusions at the time. You should have grown up by then. But yeah. like I said, it was, it was a dream for us. Is there a frustration that you didn't get an opportunity to wear the number one jersey at Sunderland? Yeah, massively. And it's, I think the the frustration comes from because I was I was so close a few times. I think that um, maybe. She, after I'd left Sunderland, I realised I wasn't ready for that. You know, I, I'm in I'm in August birthday. My birthday is the 26th of August. So any you know, every school year, I was always the youngest person in that year. Mm-hmm. And as I started getting 12, 13, I was playing in teams that were a year, two years, and sometimes three years above me. Mm-hmm. Looking back, it was great. Like again, it's great experience and in, in, in it's character building. Put in that situation. But also emotionally, I was probably and physically, I wasn't ready for those to be put into those uh, situations. And I think that at that even at like sort of eighteen, nineteen, twenty, is uh, however good I, I might have thought I was, you know, I, I was always a little bit behind mm-hmm. because, like I said, because of that um, that late birthday, and I think that that bit influence on on everything that happened to me at that time, but. Like I said about the, the close calls, you know, I've, for two years uh, I suffered with a, a broken arm, which I, I broke twice, and ended up having an operation on it where I'd have um, a screw and a plate put into it to help it heal. And both times I'd actually been involved in pre-season, and the second time was the 96-97 season when we're, we're in the Premier League under Peter Reid. We'd signed Tony Corton. And, uh, and, and TC had been injured all pre-season. Now I played most of the pre-season games. And then uh, on the eve of the on the 
eve of the uh, the Premier League start, about two days before, three days before, I brought my arm and train for the, uh, for the second time. And it, it, but it, it already happened the year before, and Peter Reid had showed a lot of faith in me when he first came in, and um, I was on the bench for the seven. I think it was seven games, seven. I think it was seven last seven games that season where he kept us up, and then the pre-season he just turned around to me and said, "Look." You're going, to, you're going to be my number two. He was trying to bring Brad Friedland at the time. And he said, I'm going to bring Brad Friedland in. He's going to be my number one. He says, but you're going to be number two. He says, obviously, you're not ready yet. But um, And he showed a lot of confi- uh, faith and confidence in me. And that gave me a lot of confidence. Mm-hmm. And then over the course of that two years, the next two years, like I said, I was, I was injured for the majority of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I've never really looked back, and I, I don't really look back with, with regret. Simply I, I get it. I get the sense of frustration there, though. Yeah, yeah, uh, um, massively, massively. Like, like I said, the, the, you know, to get that close, sometimes it's, it's worse than not getting there. Uh, Absolutely, getting anywhere near, you know. And um, yeah, coming to the end of my time at Sunderland, it was, it, it was really disappointing, simply because you know it was kind of like a. The, the dream was over a little bit, or one dream was over. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But in many ways, it, it's it helped me sustain a career for until I was thirty-six, and because it was, you know, I'd been there, I tasted, I knew what I wanted, and it just gave me a bit of uh, the motivation to sort of mm-hmm. to fight, and and that's all I did for for a lot of my career as well. You know, I, I had a lot of disappointments and uh, in my career. But those disappointments just—they just fuel me on to try and do better. Even when I got into my thirties and in towards the end of my career, there was always a big sort of motivation that mm-hmm. because I hadn't reached the heights that I wanted to, you know, it kept me pushing all the way till the end. Yeah, absolutely. Talk to me just before we move on about Peter Reid because he's a really experienced manager in the Premier League. He'd done such a great job at a range of clubs. What was he like to work under? Oh, he's fantastic. You know, from the. the from all the experience I've had about uh, with man- new managers coming in, and to me that that was the first lesson about how a manager can have an will I, or can have an influence from the very first second he walks in the dressing room. And sometimes it's you know a manager has that in that first meeting. The, the more experience I got with every manager that came in, I had a lot of managers over my career. You can generally tell in the first five or ten minutes of, of that first group meeting. You know whether a manager is going to be successful or not, or whether you like him or not. And I think that um, from that very first moment he came in, it was kind of like he didn't have to do anything. It was just the the way that he held himself, what he said, the way that he said it. It all almost automatically, you know, there was a little bit of fear, a lot of respect, and and it kind of like there was like a a line drawn where you knew you you weren't you wouldn't want to cross. And um, and it was a it was a real education for me in a way that, it, like I said about the big the big influence that first moment can have as, as a manager. Yeah. And when, as he got into his work, he demanded high standards. Whereas at Sunderland, the club that had been, people had, and it's not that did, people didn't demand high standards, but it was the way that he did it. And and I think that it was a real um, sort of sea change in in Sunderland as a club whereas it was it being a big club in the past there's no getting away from when I went there that 
it was a second division club in everything that it did and um, he was the one that dragged it by the scruff of its neck along with Bob Murray who's the chairman whose legacy was is the, the stadium of light building the stadium of light and together they dragged the, the, the club to, to what it became maybe it's what it is and uh, it, not what it is now but <laughs> what it became as, as, uh, as a Premier League club yeah really interested to hear your points there about Sunderland he then moved to Darlington um, after you left Sunderland what was that like as an experience it was probably the best thing that I'd ever done in my career you know and um, simply because I went there and I did a lot of growing up I was still physically it's 21, 20, 21 year old, I was still sort of, um, you know, still to develop physically, mentally as well, you know, you don't really get there, there's no substitute for, for first team football, and it's no matter what my experiences have been like that before, I had some great experiences with uh, playing the reserves at Sunderland, when reserve team football was, you know, it was only just, just a level be below um, first team, you know, whoever didn't play in the squad on a Saturday played on that on the Wednesday night, Tuesday night, no matter what club you're at. So you still played against great uh, great players. I remember, you know, you know, you play when you're playing against Manchester Knights and, and Liverpools and you played against top class internationals and that was a, a brilliant experience for me. But like I said, there's no uh, there's no real substitute for first team football and Towards my end of the time at Sunderland, you know, I spoke, I sat down with Peter Reid, and it was a great chat that I had with him because, you know, he gave me a lot of compliments, saying, you know, you've got a fantastic attitude. Um, the last two seasons, because of injuries, you've, you know, you haven't played a lot. When you have, your decision making hasn't been great. Simply, you know, through that lack of games, he said, he, he literally said to me that you could be here another year, and still not playing the first team football and then come the end of next season you'll be in exactly the same position you are now and you know he advised me to go up and you know he knew there was a, there was a couple of as well as a few clubs who wanted to take me go out there sign for them play games he says we'll be keeping an eye on you and um, yeah and wish me all the best and it was the best bit of advice anyone ever gave me mm -hmm. and, uh, and then played a reserve game not long after that and, and then um, Brian Robson Brian Pop Robson who was reserve team coach at the time says oh David Hodgson wants to come and meet you he's, uh, he's been watching you he's managed Darling I said yeah no problem just had a chat with him and to be honest with you that season when I played in the reserves I hadn't been great at all I'd, um, I was recovering from uh, the operation that I talked about and for a good six months after the operation Whenever I played, whenever I trained, I, I played with like a, a real heavy strap on my hand, mm -hmm. and um, and it was almost a bit like um, uh, I I just think myself as Luke Skywalker. Remember <laughs> when Luke Skywalker got his arm cut off? Yeah, yeah, the robot hand. It was literally. It didn't feel like my hand because <laughs> it, it was from the from the elbow to my fingertips. It was totally numb, and I was playing this big cast on, and and I think that. Uh, Playing with that, you know, it's uh, it sapped my confidence a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and it was funny, I, I had this five minute chat with David Hodgson. He says, I've been watching the last three or four games, and he talk, talked me through a lot of the games. 
and he just said um, he built me up a lot, a, lot, uh, a lot of praise and it was kind of like at the time because of my hand and because of the way I was playing I wasn't really you know that confident in myself and after five minutes with him I just felt like a million dollars and I felt that I wanted to play for him and you need people like that in you know throughout your career yes and yes and from going there you know I went and played at the end of that season I went and played just a couple of reserve team games for for Darlington and um, uh, as, as a trialist and the first game I think, I think it was against Scunthorpe and we won 3-0 but before the game he just said to me he says um, I want you to come for everything he says anything that comes in the box I want you to come for it he says if you don't get there or you don't deal with it and we continue to go I'll take responsibility he says but first and foremost that's what I want you to do and obviously because you know you've got late two football that's what that's what the challenge was that you know you he was wanting you to be dominating of your box yeah exactly even though like I said I was probably about 11 stone went through you know yeah, six foot one or whatever and but I wasn't physically imposing but he says with your positions and with your actions I want you to be I want you to dominate a lot of sides at that time in that division with big physical size that I always had at least one big centre forward big target man and they just fire balls in the box mm-hmm. for pressure on the goalkeeper so and that's what I did and him sort of relieving that pressure from me of you know any indecision I might have in that situation, that was just, you know, brilliant confidence-wise for me. Mm-hmm. He, uh, it, it, and from then on, in those two years I was hit with him, I got absolutely battered a lot of the time by the big centre forwards. Well, you know, it's about learning to protect yourself. Mm-hmm. And like I said, being phys- being physically yourself and, and using what you you have. You know, if I had any qualities, it was it, you know, I was I was very quick in a great spring and, and and that's what I used in those situations and like I said it was, it was the best thing that's, uh, that ever helped me going there and I said it, it makes you grow a lot physically, uh, mentally as well Yeah, you made over 100 appearances for Darlington and when I think of Darlington now, where have they fallen? It's a real shame isn't it because they were a really solid kind of League 1, League 2 side-ish in the, the English League but now they're, they're they kind of dropped down, it's a real shame where they've fallen yeah, I mean, they had a great thing going with David Hodgson. You know, he, uh, he was a manager who, um, after he stopped playing, he, he became an agent. And since he, he left Darlington, uh, he's back. He's, he's an agent and, and works in recruitment now. He had a brilliant eye for a player. And especially for Northeast players, you know, players who were leaving, um, young players and experienced players who were. They were leaving like some Middlesbrough, Sunderland and Newcastle mm-hmm. and what he would do is he'd have that blend of real sort of old heads, really experienced players like of Gary Bennett who I played with at Sunderland, you know, 10-11 years at playing at Sunderland, played cup finals. Uh, Craig Little, who was a sort of mid-twenties but he'd been experienced with, uh, he was a good player. with Middlesbrough, yeah. And Marco Gabbiadini, like I said, who was a a legend to me. He came in when he late, uh, late in his career at Darlington. We had a lot of younger players who he, he then sold on, like some myself. We had Jason DeVos, who was at uh, Dundee United, of course. Dundee United. He sold at Dundee United for for four hundred thousand. So he get these players in from you know 
from abroad, not only from abroad, but from, from local clubs. And he'd sell them on for massive, well, say massive property, get these players for free and then sell them on for mm-hmm. three, four, five hundred thousand pounds. Which at the time oh. was big money. Huge, huge money. I mean, if you think it's even now, you know, the, the, the transfer fees that the likes of Aberdeen can pay, big club like Aberdeen, you know, the, the, that, that's what's, you know, you know, three, four hundred thousand pounds, you know, they were signed for like a. I think it was, he, was it Hisham Hisham Zerali the late Hisham Zerali what a player yeah you know like that's 20 years ago you know and the club would struggle to pay those uh, yeah those you, you just mentioning that just makes me smile because you know it's a shame that Zerali is no longer with us but he was just unbelievable but let's talk about how that move to Aberdeen came about why did you decide to move up to the northeast of Scotland well around that time it's, uh, in that second season I'm a darling that the club had had quite a bit of interest for me, so like you know, the, the likes of Bolton and Charlton, who were uh, who were Championship sides at the time. I think um, Sam Aldice was was manager of of Bolton, but he'd been pre- previously he was at Notts County, and he tried to sat uh, in the summer before. I think he came in for me uh, while he was at Notts County before he went out to Bolton, and um, and it's strange because you know when I think of that. Sam Allardyce was in at Sunderland under Peter Reid. I think he'd left, he, he left, but he got sacked from Blackpool. He came in, I can't remember his title, but he came in as in some capacity at Sunderland. And he was on me every day. Every day in training, he was on me. Whatever it was, little, little things I did, he was on me. And I, and I was thinking, every time I would see him at the side of the pitch, you know, when we were training, like, you know, like, rolling my eyes, thinking, oh, God, what's he going to say next? Like, <laughs> and, I, and I just thought, oh, God, you know, he's. Uh, this, this fella just doesn't like me like you know and then it was a subsequent it turns out he tries to time beside me twice and um, and, it, and it's it's really interesting to, like, again it's all an education you know some uh, sometimes I think players feel like coaches are picking on them when they're on them all the time and what I've learned is, that, is when a coach doesn't say anything to you at all that's when you need to start worrying you know yeah yeah so like it, we had a, a, a bit of interest but he Again, David Hodgson with the advice, he was brilliant. You know, he, he could have cashed in on me uh, at any time because the club wasn't in great financial uh, position. And um, and even at the end of that uh, that second season, uh, Air United came in for me. Wow. Air, United, Air United offered like seventy-five grand or something like that. And the position the club were in uh, at that time, they needed money to pay the wages. That second season, there was a we'd started off the season really well, and um, I think we went to Brentford's sort of like before Christmas, and we were um, we were top and they were second. Now at the time, Brentford were, were buying I think the um, Herman Horizon centre half who played for for Palace and Charlton. Ipswich Town as well. <laughs> what a player he was! Yeah, uh, they had signed him for like eight hundred thousand. Blimey. You know that season, and we we were travelling down there, being told that we couldn't, uh, we weren't going to get paid that month. You know, so you've got lads in there who, you know, it, it's who. That must have been hard. That must have been hard to hear that news about the fact yeah, that you might not get paid. It was literally on the bus on the way down, said we're not going to get paid this month. We don't know when we're going to get paid, and um, so that was the situation all the way through the season. We sort of faded away towards the uh, towards the back end of the season. We finished outside the playoffs. 
but it was it, it, it's 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 a tough thing to hear. Like I said, it, you know, it's playing on people's minds when they're when it's in the back of minds when they're playing, and um, so it got a situation where they received a, a bit of seventy five thousand from from um, from Air United, who were in the sort of the set, well, championship in Scotland, and um, they said, look, the chairman was saying we have to sell them, like you know, we need the money to come in to keep the to keep the club going, and. Luckily, David Hodgson managed to steer them off. He knew it wasn't the right move for me, and um, yeah, and, and luckily for me, the club was taken over by George Reynolds, and so we managed to hang on. And then pre-season, I think it was a week before we were supposed to uh, play a first game of season against Halifax. Just pull after train, one train session, David Hodgson pulled me in. Just said, "Look, Aberdeen have uh, come in for you. Want you to go up there and speak to them." He says, "I think it's a great. They think it's, it's great for you, not." good for us as well you know the money we're getting but also it's good for you you're going in there as number one the reason why he, he you know he turned down bids before and, and advised me to turn them down simply because I'd have been going into probably Charlton and Bolton initially as third choice mm-hmm. yeah you know? and again you said there later on you just wanted to be playing first team football yeah exactly and I've got a taste for it and and it was you know, on his advice and, and what I thought of as well, you know, from, from what I knew of Aberdeen, yeah, I, I was on the flight that afternoon. Yeah. What, to, what, to meet, to meet yeah. what was your experiences like of Aberdeen? Because I'm an Aberdeen fan myself, I'm going to put that out there. I mean, it's a it's a really established club, uh, very passionate fans. What was it like playing for the Reds? Overall, um, it was absolutely an unbelievable time in my career and for uh, for me at the time going straight in, uh, going straight in that side you know signing I think I signed the Thursday or Friday trained with the, with the team on the Saturday and then we played the Sunday against Salik and it was you know, it was just a whirlwind really and uh, probably all a little bit too much and, and too much of a, I said this before it's probably too much of a step up you know I, in, in League 2 I'd done really well and, um, and you know, like it's a certain type of football, and you, it's you know you get used to what you've got to deal with. Like I said, we, you know, it's sort of a lot of direct football, and you deal with the physical aspect of the game, and, and in turn the mentally uh, mental aspect of the game with that. But then going up and facing Celtic with the likes of Viduka, Mivravchek, um, Henry Larson, of course, it was just a totally different different ball game not bad three players eh? <laughs> no exactly I mean they were the three players that absolutely tortured us that day and um, and it was a, it was a real big step up and it's a real steep learning curve for me and looking back those first two years there at Aberdeen were an absolute nightmare you know what could go wrong did go wrong um, I, I don't think I was playing particularly badly in those first 12 games when I went up there but just it was accumulation of things. The, the team weren't playing well at all. Um, Ed Skodal was manager at the time, wasn't he? And I, I get the impression that his tactics and his ideas were very, um, how shall I put this? Right, well, they were very different, shall we say, to a typical managerial approach. Yeah, they were. I mean, I'd love to. I'd love to have gone up uh, up to Aberdeen with a, you know, the start of pre-season. You know, when I could have integrated with the squads a lot more and got used to, to the, what the manager wanted a lot more but what I found there initially was that there was um, 
a lot of confusion over exactly what he wanted in that game that first game the tactics were to, to sit off them and sort of hit them on the break but when I when I look back at the game the uh, the players took it far too literally and it was like we stood off them everywhere on the pitch in the attacking third and full back areas you know we're letting Moravchek just have plenty of time on the ball as much space as he wanted just to take a touch deliver the ball in the box pick his space and people like Faduga and, and Larson are just going to eat, eat that up like you know so it was that that was a you know that was a contributing factor as well but again you know as a team and individually which weren't playing well at all mm-hmm. and it was uh, it was a real struggle and then the injury problems I had on top of that you know the concussion at Celtic Park that was the three-two game, wasn't it? No, that was that was seven-nil. That. Oh, the seven-nil game. I'm thinking of it yeah. later on in your career. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the first one. So, like, it was, you know, from then on, you know, I, I couldn't train for a few weeks because I was in hospital with a concussion, post-traumatic amnesia, where I was, you know, had a short, uh, short-term memory loss. Why? And then it was, um, like I said, it was. I think it was about fifteen months. Like, I got in the first team, and it was. Then on top of that, you know, there was always there was always injury problems. Uh, that, that I battle with but look again the experiences you get from that's where you've got to find you find out a lot of things about yourself mm-hmm. and I was getting a lot of stick from the the fans you know and I, I don't think that ever went away really you know there was probably a, a lot of fans who I didn't didn't win over in my time mm-hmm. there um, but that again that became a great motivation for me mm-hmm. I almost moved to Tranmere right um, sort of I think it was 2001 and uh, I went down there trained with them and uh, actually uh, signed and the, uh, it was the first year of the transfer window so they thought that because it was a different a different league that um, it, the transfer window didn't apply because I think the very first transfer window only included clubs in England or mm-hmm. clubs in your division so if you came from Say if I was to come from France, I could have signed. Yeah. So anyway, that that um, that all fell through, and I had to go back. Um, I went back to Aberdeen, and like I said, it, the motivation was then okay. I'm back here now. I just want to prove a lot of people wrong. And prove yourself right as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because it, you know it, I hadn't I hadn't done myself justice at all. Again, it was, it was a battle. You know, you, know, you had Peter Kerr who was in there, who was an absolutely brilliant goalkeeper. He was a very good keeper. Yeah, Jim Lane, of course, you're right at the beginning. You know, he was still around. Ryan Essen, so good series yeah, Ryan, of goalkeepers there. Yeah, Ryan was Ryan, Ryan was a a great goalkeeper. You know, I think probably uh, doesn't get the credit he deserves for his time at uh, at Aberdeen. Obviously, he went on and played a lot of times for Inverness as well. Yeah, and he, he was. Uh, I was. When I went in there, I was I was actually surprised that they didn't actually just go with Ryan. I know that he, he was probably only nineteen at the time, and uh, but I'd say the quality that he had, and you know, uh, so it, we had a great rivalry and, and a great friendship. And same with Jim Layton. Jim's been a, a big influence in my career, um, on and off the pitch, because it, like I said you need these people throughout your career who you can who you can lean on, you know, when you need to, when you mm-hmm. need advice. And Jim was was brilliant for me, especially through the bad. You know, I was going through the bad times at Aberdeen because it was uh, there, there was a lot of them. Mm. And, uh, what know, about? He, 
What did, sorry, Dave, what, what about other players in the Aberdeen dressing room at your time there? Who really did you connect with around the time? We mentioned Zarali earlier on. Was he one that you connected with? Do you know what? That's one of the, the, one of the big um, the big takeaways from, from Aberdeen was the, the friends that I made up there. But the first year, probably didn't bond so much with a lot of people, but simply because I was young and there was a lot of experienced players in there. And then that second year, uh, Eber decided I'm going to go with, you know, he had a lot of good young players uh, there who had been brought through, up through the youth team and um, decided to go, to go with the youth. So you've got the players like um, David Lilly and Jim McAllister came in, the young brothers, Chris Clark, um, Darren Mackey, um, Phil McGuire, um, Ken McNaughton. And these are all people that over the course of the six years was at the Dane, uh, Russell Anderson, of course, um, that because we were we were all young, we were all thrown in the first team together. Um, you know, we went through some rough times at Aberdeen. You know, yeah, uh, uh, on the pitch. You know, and it kind of bonded us all together. There was a lot of real gallows humour in the dressing room. You know, mm -hmm. because it was kind of like, well, if we don't look at it this way, then we'll, we're just going to go under. We exactly. young players, we didn't, we didn't have the experience to call on. Um, you know, to get us out of trouble. So we looked at each other and thought, well, we've only got each other. So, like, off the pitch, it was really bonded. Mm -hmm. and I think that, um, and look back fondly at those times, and we still keep in touch with, with a lot of them. Um, and not only that, I, I, I really ended up loving living in Aberdeen, loved the place, and, you know, because of the nature of, of Aberdeen, that it's, you know, one city football team, uh, one football team, city. Sorry, you know you, you haven't got a lot of you know Dundee's are now and a bit away, so there's a lot of focus on the football club in the city. Yes. So you know you walk down the street and I'd get abuse, or I'd get a lot a lot of people coming and you know wanting to chat. You know, and either way, I actually absolutely loved it. You know, even the in the abuse you used to get, I, I used to like. Sort of, if somebody give me abuse or shout something, I like to go and talk to them. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. I like to just just talk them for a bit and just say, well, you know, give them like a, a different viewpoint and say, well, it's it's alright, just saying we're we're crap or I'm crap or whatever. <laughs> but, you know, let's chat chat about it. Most but you but it seems to me you're very thick skinned, and I think that's really good trait to have in a football player to just take abuse. I mean, we're seeing it in the Premier League at the moment with people like Harry Maguire, for example, at Manchester United. Yeah, I mean, social media's got to do with, a lot to do with that. And I, you know, I've said this a lot that if social, you know, if Twitter had been around when uh, when I'd been Aberdeen, I wouldn't be on it at all. I, w I wouldn't have been on it at all. Yeah. And, but I, you know, I didn't take I didn't take it. Um, I took it in the right way. All the criticism that I got, whether it was in, in, in newspapers or from fans or whatever, I took it in the right way. Simply because one, most of the time. I, I'd agree with them that I, want, I hadn't been playing well mm -hmm. if, if I deserved the criticism but also like I said it, it gives you motivation to want to do well and I wanted to do well for the club and the longer I was there the more I grew to love the club mm -hmm. and I still love the club now Yeah. and and, and again I go back to the emotional attachment I have with um, I had with Sunderland once you get I want that emotional attachment with the fans and with um, and with the club because it, it's, it gives you that extra motivation Mm -hmm. but also I think that um, I'm trying to think what my point was 
it was like um, I come from a club in Sunderland and grew up in a place in Sunderland where the fans were very much the same as, as Aberdeen fans you know yeah, I've always found that the most partisan uh, fans can be uh, the most critical f- fans as well yes if they're the best fans in the world they can be the best the worst at times mm. so like you know the, we used to Sunderland are exactly the same where you know things aren't going well that they'll stick by the team mm-hmm. Newcastle fans are the same I would argue yeah it, they'll stick by the team through thick and thin but they'll tell you what they think of the team absolutely you know? and I think a lot of time when I was at, when I first came to, to Tabardine there was a lot of negativity around the club and um, like I said you know the longer I was there the more I just wanted to do well for the fans and, and wanted to get the you know get the club back to, to where it should be like you know and it was yeah there, there was tough times along the way like I said but it was I don't know it, it, it just made me made me love the club even more yeah absolutely and one last thing I wanted to ask about Eb Skodal is because you know he, he really kind of bought into the sort of Scandinavian influences didn't he he brought in people like Kato Gundfeind Arold Stavrum was a bit of a cult hero at the time what was it like with those guys at the club I mean, it was um, it was never a dull moment <laughs> on, 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 on and off the pitch, and um, especially with Ebway, he was a he was a real character, and, and not that he, he meant to be it by any means, but we, like I said, we were a group of young lads who I don't know, maybe it's, uh, I'll try to put this the right way, you know. Again, we we didn't. We weren't sort of, um, oh, <laughs> but it was like we we grew to love Eber anyway, regardless of whether his methods and you know he he probably wasn't the manager that we needed at the time, especially for young players. We probably needed more, I don't know, maybe more of an arm round us a, a yeah. little bit. A, a streetwise manager like a Sam Allardyce or someone like that who just knew how to make his tough to beat. Yeah, exactly, and I think that um, you know we grew to love him the way that just because of all these, these little quirks and all these these little sayings, he had. He had you know, I've said a lot of these on uh, on social media and, and podcasts I've done before, but he he'd, he'd had so many of these sort of like uh, scoffdollisms that it was like. I love that term. <laughs> We had, we had this. We had this. Uh, it's like a trestle table in, in the dressing room where, like, they put the balls on everything that uh, everything needs to be signed, all the autographs, and everything. And we'd always anything new that he'd say, we'd write it down on this uh, on this trestle table, like you know. And it became like a sort of, well, it was like a, it was a huge joke. But it was, and we'd sit and read them all, like you know. And I don't know whether I find this funny or really bizarre or both. <laughs> yeah, we'd quote him all the time, you know. And it was. Unbelievable. He became a cult figure in the dressing room until one day he, came, he never used to come in the dressing room much, and then he came in and he, we just saw him stood, watch, like looking, reading all the little quotes. He obviously knew it was it was like a bit of a piss take for him, and he had, he had the table taken out of the dressing room. Yeah, as I I couldn't believe that he was uh, Michael and Brian Lydrup's uncle, which I just find absolutely unbelievable. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's mad, and again I keep going I keep going back to how football is such a small world and the fact that. Know, where my career ended up after that, you know, with his his influence and and 
Michael Laudrup was a hero to me as a kid. You know, I, was, I was obsessed with the '86 World Cup. You know, in that Danish side of the of the mid '80s. Uh, and Michael Laudrup was just a real hero for me like you know yeah absolutely superb what about the other managers that were Aberdeen at that time if you were there Steve Passon and Jimmy Calderwood what were they like in comparison to Eben I think that um, you know Steve when he when he came in he was a bit like it was a, a breath of fresh air from, from what we've been used to you know uh, there'd been sort of like the, the, the blueprint that um, that ever came up with you know the, the 4-3-3 and only now or, or since since I left Aberdeen uh, you know going to Denmark and I could say exactly what he was trying to, what he was trying to do with, with all that and but I don't know whether it was because of the way that he put things across and it, I don't think it was really explained very well and um, the way that it was coached and it wasn't until later on that you know I further my own football education that say all right you know this is what he was trying to do, but it it's it just never really it never really clicked. And um, when Steve Passon came in, it was a, it was a lot more sort of um, it gave the players a lot more freedom um, to play, and it was a lot more. Even though we didn't get the results, the the idea was that it was a lot more attack minded, mm-hmm. and. Um, but again, then um, I think recruitment from that point of uh, from from uh, from Steve Patterson's point of view was he, you know obviously try to do again what he did at um, it's at Inverness, but it, it, it simply just it didn't work. And, and the players that he brought in Inverness, like I think it was like Barry Robson and um, David Bingham, you know players like that who you know went on to to become very good players. In, in, the, in the SPL, um, they, they weren't brought into to Aberdeen, like you know. Obviously, Steve Tosh and, and Paul Sheehan were, were two excellent players. Lovely footballer, uh, Paul Sheehan. Steve mm-hmm. Tosh, great character. Well, she was a great player. Yeah, good player. But then there, there was players around that who just didn't quite. It didn't quite happen for them. And, and it, it, you know, it was, um, you know. Maybe bringing a lot of players from from lower levels and, and expecting them to to perform in the SPL straight away, it it just didn't work really. And um, and but again, that's that time I look back at with a lot of fondness because um, you know he, he he gave me a new deal at the club. Um, he made me vice captain to, to Russell Anderson and because of. Uh, unfortunately, the Russell's uh, injury that he's injuries that he had with his uh, with his ACL, you know, it meant that I, I captained the club uh, on quite a few occasions that season, or over the course of the, those eighteen months when uh, when Russell was out, and it's a real highlight of my career, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, captain uh, going out and being captain of the sides uh, in a club such as Aberdeen it was. Um, yeah, it was it was brilliant and and probably a better situation for me than later on when I went to Silkeborg and, and was captain there because you know even though that um, you know I was captain on the pitch that because Russell was club captain didn't feel that pressure on me that uh, that I did later on in at Silkeborg yeah you know went out there and of course I had the pride of being captain on, on the pitch but you know mm-hmm. 
Russell had all the responsibilities off it, which, uh, which helped, I think. You mentioned Silkeborg there. How different is Danish football in comparison to Scottish football, having experienced it over there? It, it was um, a great eye-opener for me, simply because it was, it was, um, it was a lot more tactical, um, it, which was, like I said, it was really educational for me. My manager when I went there was, uh, was Viggo Jensen, and, um, you know, he was... Along with, along with probably Jimmy Calderwood and, and, and David Hodgson were the, the ones who um, well, I learned a lot off simply because there was a, a lot more detail went into to their work and to, into the preparation for games. But Vigo Jensen was on a different level to what I'd, I'd seen before. The detail that he went into to, to match preparation, to into training, um, it was a lot more than... Uh, an educational style where you, you you were every day you were learning you know he, he questioned you constantly his his office was um, the door before the um, the the, the changing room and the uh, the training ground and so every morning you know there was only one rule on the morning you had to say a good morning to him as you went past and as you left you had to you know say goodbye as you're leaving and quite often he would drag you in and you know he'd have his he'd have his um the, the tactics board up, like you know, and he just come up with a random question for you. Or he talk about a situation that happened in there um, in, in the previous game or whatever, and you sit there for about fifteen minutes, and and it was brilliant because he could, it wasn't again it wasn't until later you realise even at twenty nine thirty, one he wanted to learn off me because he wanted he was asking me questions about how we did it in Aberdeen, how we did it in, you know in England, and how and he was teaching you something oh well this is we do this and this is why we do it that's interesting oh it, it was brilliant and, and one of my first games there we, we were 2-0 down quite early on uh, to Esbia and um, and early early in the second half I started sort of, I was getting the ball and I was just launching it forward and he screamed at the side of the pitch and I couldn't understand what he's saying and so after the game next morning he's saying you know why did you start doing that he says oh well you know, two nil down. I just want to get the ball forward. So, if I want you to do that, I'd have told you to do that to start of the game. You know, and it was like stick to the plan. I've, 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 I've designed a plan for the game that I think will work, whether it's nil nil or two two or two nil down or whatever. That's what I think's right. That's an interesting point you make because more and more in the Premier League especially we're seeing teams playing out from the back a lot more the game has certainly changed from this long ball from a goal kick these days everybody just seems to, to play out from the back certainly in the Premier League in England well I mean if you, in comparison to say if you look at sort of the SPL when I played for Aberdeen and then going to, to uh, Super League in, in Denmark in standards in whole I think there's better quality in Denmark. That's interesting. And, and if you look at, say, the, uh, take back pass rule for, for instance, playing the feet, a lot of time, the time I was getting the ball at Aberdeen, the ball was coming back to me, I'm being pressured by somebody you know, running 100 miles an hour, yeah? and then all you're seeing is, all I was seeing was backsides, you know, pressing up, getting ready to, to go for the second ball, and then I'd be launching it. And when I went to... To, to Denmark I found that you know I wasn't being pressed up, uh, as much 
Um, I had a lot more time on the ball. But also, not only that, players were positioning themselves. So I wasn't just having to hit the ball long forward. And I kind of, it wasn't until I went there that I discovered that, you know, that I was a lot better on the ball with my feet than one, that, that I thought myself, and two, that it's, I'd, I'd been able to show in the, in the games in, in Scotland and, and mm-hmm. in England. And, um, and it was a real sort of, I really feel like I flourished mm-hmm. there. And of course, I still made the odd mistake where, you know, like, you know, when you're trying to pass out, the more you pass out, the more mistakes you made. But again, it was like, well, this is, Vigo was saying, well, this is what I want you to do. I don't just want you to mm-hmm. hit it long. Um, I want you to try and find a player, uh, one of, find one of our players. Yeah. And, and that was it. They, they were prepared, you know, they weren't just, it wasn't just backsides going forward and I didn't have any options. Mm-hmm. And and that was, again, that, that's a test in itself, even though we've got more more time on the ball, because I think in Scotland and England at that time, players were often playing the first option that was on because they were being closed down, they didn't have a lot of time on the ball. So yes. really, it makes it easier by cutting your options down. Once you're given time with the ball, you might have three or four different options. That's when there's even more pressure on you to make the right choice. Exactly. So it was, um, I'll not keep saying that, but I can sound like a, sound like a parrot, but the, the education that gave me and the technical awareness of the managers and that each game was, was different and we, different tactics and, you know, looking at the preparation for games. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but what other sides are going to, the problems other sides are going to, uh, Going to pause you. It was uh, it was it was because I love that information. Yeah. And, and maybe it's not a regret, but I really wish that I played. I was playing now simply because of all, all the, the the tools and option uh, uh, the available to you to to look at opposition to uh, to go back and look at your games. So it wasn't it wasn't as easy to do yeah. that back then. That's a really interesting point to make there. You moved back to the UK. Um, well, I just want to just brush over the closing stages of your career. Why did you want to come back to the UK to, to finish your season out? Oh, when I went back to Barnsley. Yeah, well, well, your campaign out as a whole. Yeah, Barnsley. Yeah, I mean, it was. You no, know, I'd had three seasons at Silkeborg, and those second, the, the, the second and third season were again spoiled by injury. Um, halfway through the season. Uh, the second season, I, um, I had a cartilage operation, which meant I, I missed the, the last three months of the season, which was was devastating for me to see that you know because we were we weren't doing great in the in the, in the league at the time. We were just above relegation, and we, and we ended up being relegated that season. And again, like, I was cap, you know eventually around the time I was captain of the side, captain of the club. So it was you know I took that really hard. You know even though it was. The, Frustrated not being able to to contribute in any way, and then the second, se- uh, the third season, sorry, we were down in the second division, and we up there. I think we were in second place, fighting for fighting for promotion. And um, in the winter break again, I uh, I ruptured my bicep, so I missed the rest of that season. No, had a fair share of luck with injuries. <laughs> no, no, that's it. And you, do you know what? You know, it is a, a lot of it was down to myself that I, I, I realise now simply because that that attitude that I had that I hardly used to take any days off and I would train so hard that my body just it was inevitable that my body was going to start breaking down mm-hmm. and um, 
but at the time I didn't realise that, I just thought I had to train as hard as possible to get the best out of myself so that I was most prepared on the Saturday, when really, I was just, I was just driving myself in the ground, you know, and and that's what, eventually every so often my body would just break down, something, something would happen. Yeah. And, um, but it, it, again, the, the, uh, I managed to have a, um, another year at Odense, went, went there, uh, who were, were going for the title that season, um, they were building up a, a side full of internationals, and, and Vigo Jensen was the, um, was the, uh, was one of the, the, the coaches there. Yeah. So I went there with him, and, but they had a fantastic goalkeeper in Eric and Oshko. You know, it was between me and him for the uh, for the number one jersey, and he, he he was absolutely brilliant. So you know, I didn't play that season for them, and you know, I'd I'd, uh, I'd start a family in, in Denmark. You know, I, I had a daughter, my daughter was born in Denmark, and she was two year old at that time, and and it was, it was tough being away from the family. You know, mm-hmm. so it was, it was just a decision that well, I need to go and play the last few years of my career to do that I had to move away and it was yeah Barnes again David uh, come through David Hodgson um, you know got a phone call one day said you know do you fancy going to Barnsley I was like brilliant get me back there and uh, yeah uh, and uh, as much as I love my time in, in, in Aberdeen and as much as I got from Aberdeen the, probably the, the three years I was at Barnsley even though I didn't play that often you know Probably the three most enjoyable of my career. Yeah, that's a really interesting final nugget to hear about your career at Barnsley because Oakwell is a really special stadium, isn't it? Down there, and you know their fans. What a season they had in the championship last year to stay up so fantastically well, and it is great to see them doing reasonably well down there right now. Yeah, I mean they are a really good club. I mean, I don't know if it's still the same stats now, but the while I was there, they were the club who spent the most seasons. In the second tier of English football, you know, Why? and for a club like for a club like Barnsley and the the uh, the budget that they had uh, con- consistently throughout the years, you know, they were they were overperforming, still overperforming mm-hmm. to this day. You know, it was a great club, and uh, like I said, even though I didn't play that often there, the the games that I did play in the Championship and in, in the League the League Cup for them, you know, that was a motivation for going there rather than maybe going for league, a League 1, League 2 club in England where I might play more the motivation was that whatever game I played however many games I played for Barnsley in the Championship for them it would have been worth 10 in League 2 to me because I yeah. just wanted to play at the highest level as possible yeah absolutely when you retired uh, from your playing days what was your thoughts of life post football you said you'd started a family um, you then decided to make the move into the world of journalism you'd, you'd go for a university degree what was the thinking behind that I mean I, I'd, I'd actually started my my, um, my study in while I was at Aberdeen um, um, was that something you always wanted to do journalism yeah I mean interesting Writing had always interested me, you know, from a very early age. Um, I, I was never a very good sleeper. Only now that I'm older do I, do I manage to get any sleep, you know. But, um, <laughs> Quite ironic considering earlier on, but never mind, go on. <laughs> but um, yeah, even from an early age, I'd be up in the middle of the night, I'd be listening to the radio, I'd be reading comics. I mean, this is when I was really young, you know. And then um, I still do it myself. <laughs> <laughs> but then. Um, yeah, so then I started. I read something in um, an old Reader's Digest that my, my dad used to 
get delivered and it was about people you know who had trouble sleeping and we talked about one of the tips was um, writing things down before you go to bed keeping a diary so I'd done that from like a really early age but then that developed into just writing sort of fiction and uh, and then when I, when I went to sort of secondary school uh, in my GCSE years from 14 to 16 I had a teacher called uh, Mr Basham who was probably the He's the, the typical, stereo, stereotypical evil teacher. He's the one teacher that you know that everyone hates. He's really disciplined. He was, uh, he was teaching at the school and my parents were there. And so when there was, um, uh, there was still sort of like the, you know, you get the, the cane at school and things like that. He was the one who dished out the cane. He, he was, you feared him, everybody feared him. So, and he was my English teacher. And and again, maybe it's the same as the the Peter. What you think about, you know, it's good to have some fear in uh, in, in your authority, uh, people of authority around you. But also that he drilled in um, the the education side of it um, to to the nth degree. We, we the few books that we studied in those two years, like of um, To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, Great novel, by the way. Great novel, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it, and it's still one of my favourites now, and. We, we, but we, we went into so much detail we went through a fine tooth comb so by the end of it we knew it back to front and um, obviously that helped with the, with the, the, the exams as well and I got a, got a couple of years in my English language and literature and, and I, but I enjoyed the writing as well and so from then on I, it was always in the back of my mind that if football didn't work out that, you know, that I would be a journalist and I started doing NCTG courses when I was at Aberdeen. Started doing a bit of media work with Satanta at the time, um, and with Radio Scotland, uh, doing some co- uh, core companies. And it was, uh, and then it went, went on from there. And then I just loved the work, absolutely loved it. And when I, when I eventually finished playing, coaching's great. I love coaching. Mm-hmm. I love the, the the detail of it, and and you know, especially with set pieces and and analysing the game I love all that the preparation mm-hmm. for games mm-hmm. and but you still don't get that same buzz on a on a Saturday simply because it's I don't know much of your work's done before that 90, mm-hmm. second, uh, 90 minutes and mm-hmm. then lock it up the players well as a journalist you're supposed to be relatively neutral uh, when you're watching whereas if you're a coach and that you're, you're kind of more engrossed in it aren't you? yeah but it, it, it gave me a different appreciation of the, of the game so like I'm uh, I was going watching Watched a lot of games in London. You know when Spurs were playing at, at, um, at Wembley, Wembley Stadium, got to watch them a lot. Um, but from that neutral perspective, you could actually watch the game for what it was. I wasn't mm-hmm. in the game. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you can get as a player and a coach, you can get lost in the game. You need to withdraw yourself from that so you can see the see exactly what's going on rather than get caught in the emotions of it. Yeah. And when I was watching the games, as you know, whether I was writing about or writing about certain aspects of the game, it was great just to see it from a, a different perspective, mm-hmm. a, a more analytic perspective, and, and, I, yeah. and I loved that. Yeah, I like that as well. I'm, I'm a really big fan of GG Bull. I don't know if you know GG at all. Yeah, he does yeah. a lot of great stuff. I'm a big fan of the Tilly Scottish Football Show, which he does. Michael Cox does a lot of good stuff on Zonal Mark, yeah. and I enjoy reading those guys' works. Um, very, very interesting. Do, do, you, do you know what? It, it gave working with a lot of these guys like uh, you know especially with the Totally Football Show um, with Raph 
Onyxstein and, uh, and James and uh, I'm envious you got to speak with Richardson by the way uh, <laughs> he's my he's a hero <laughs> I want him on the show so James if you're listening another plea for me <laughs> do, do, you know, do you know what it, it's like going into uh, I, I like being taken out of my comfort zone and being amongst uh, people like that who not only are very intelligent people, but they're very knowledgeable about the game. Mm-hmm. They've got a, uh, uh, like, like I said, a, a great understanding of the game. Mm-hmm. They've got a plethora of knowledge. Yeah, oh, unbelievable. And do you know what? It, it get, coming out of football, and then it gave me a great appreciation of a lot of writers and journalists. You know, as a player, and a, you can you can almost think, oh, what, what do they know about the game? They, they know nothing. They've never played the game and all that. But then it, it, it gave me a real great appreciation of, of how much they do actually know about the game and um, uh, and uh, like I said it, being, it, being amongst intelligent people like that one it's you know it, it, it's nerve wracking you know I've come from a different world from, from them and um, I know maybe it's not, maybe it's not lots expected of footballers and, you know on an intellectual level like you know but it was and that's where I started to get my buzz from, from being in comfortable situations and being in situations live on TV or radio. That's where, it was nowhere near playing, but it was it was still a, a little bit of a buzz and the only thing that was close, as close to playing as I, I could get. Yeah, yeah, absolutely fantastic. And I'm really envious, that, like I said, that you got to chat with Richardson because he's one of my heroes. Um, I wanted to ask you about your time at Manchester City because um, you... We're doing was it assistant goalkeeping recruitment at the time? Yeah, yeah. Well, what it was, I'd, I'd been, um, I'd went back to, I'd been at Lincoln for for a couple of seasons, two about two and a half seasons, sort of like, I played a little bit, but I was coaching as well, and then um, then I went to Barnsley for a little stint, um, doing their under 23s and under 18s keepers uh, there, and then because. Um, because of things that were, were happening, sort of, uh, sort of at home, that I, I sort of I split up with uh, with my with my girlfriend, and so like, and she moved back to Newcastle. They were in Barnsley at the time. We were all in Barnsley, but then they moved back to Newcastle, uh, and so it became a real difficulty that I was working Saturdays and Sundays, or mostly around weekends, with uh, the under twenty threes and eighteens, and. You know, come to a point where I made a choice. Well, I need to see my daughter. You know, I, I can't. You know, it's impossible for, for me to break that off. So then I just took. I just decided. So look, I'm going to take a break from coaching. I take a break for six months. See how it goes. Do the media stuff. That six months turned into two years, and then things were going really well. And then I just got approached by uh, David Rouse, who was um, his head of goalkeeper recruitment in Man City. Um, came over and uh, had lunch with me and she said look I, I'd like you to tell about uh, here um, you know it was a lot of it was just analysis of goalkeepers um, analysis of the keepers that were already at City but also uh, potential uh, recruitment and and that was from watching games from under nines up to first team level mm-hmm. and and that, even though I was only there for one season before I, I came uh, came over to Sweden, it was actually uh, at, at that time in my uh, in my life it was perfect for me. Mm-hmm. It allowed me to do my media stuff. Yeah. But also, it was getting you know 
been in and around the uh, Man City, around the training ground. Um, a top club with top players. I mean, uh, I mean the goalkeepers of City have at the time. I've just, just mentioned them down here: Joe Hart, Claudio Bravo, Ederson, of course, is still there. Caballero was there. I mean, you must have got a good understanding of how different goalkeepers work because Joe Hart is a Premier League winner. You know, Claudio Bravo come in and okay, didn't have the best of times at moments, but he had some good moments as well. Caballero and obviously Ederson is still there, is is doing absolutely fantastic, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, yeah. But is it, you know what it was? It was, you know, I, I hadn't, uh, I hadn't really done much scouting before then, and and sort of analysis of keepers, and again, it was a great learning curve for me. The the, the way that it, they did things at City, and it was kind of pretty easy in a way that you knew what you're looking for because Edison was the blueprint. That's what they're, that's what they're looking for. They're, they're looking for goalkeepers who were, were like sort of the same t- you know cut from the same uh, cloth as him so it was some of the, the, the games we went to, to watch went a lot of games in Europe to watch games or watching a, you know a, a go from watching an under 8's game or under 9's game at sort of indoors at, at Barnsley to watching you know uh, Zach Steffen who's um Who's the number two at City now? Um, you know, watching him play for Columbus Crew, but mm-hmm. a lot of it was to do with uh, a lot of it was to do with youth youth recruitment as well. Mm-hmm. And, and it was just fascinating, just mm-hmm. going all over watching. You know, you know, got, spent a lot of time in Holland watching games in the academies in Holland. You know, and you know, obviously you're watching the goalkeepers, but you know, you're watching you know different aspects of the, of the games and how different teams do it different club setups and it was and it was great just going being able to go around and sort of uh, learn from from the, such an environment and even going in whenever I report into the, the training ground at, um, at at City you know it was great sort of having the contact with uh, Javi Mancisador who was the, the goalkeeper coach there he was a fascinating character honestly mm. he's uh, some of his ideas are just are just brilliant, and uh, and even meeting you know meeting Pep as well. And and the, f- the first time that I went in there to meet everyone, you know, getting sh- I was getting shown around the, the training ground. We walked past Pep's office. Pep comes out and they got introduced to Pep, and he sort of grabbed my arm and just said, you know, um, how's everything? You know, are you happy with everything? Uh, have you got everything you've got? And I'm like, and I'm like just stunned, going, yeah, yeah, everything's great, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know. In totally starstruck, like you know. Brilliant. Um, yeah, and it, and it, it's a, it's a great environment that they're uh-huh. they're creating there, and uh, it's it, and it was uh, I loved it every second of it. But the moment I got the the call to to see if I want to come out to Oscar Sons, and it was that sort of um, the time at City, it just got me sort of um, got its hooks with football. Got, it's hooks back into me a little bit and uh, I found out that I just thought that I need to get this out of my system a little bit yeah. I want, this is what I want to do and I don't have any regrets about not going back into, into coaching and, and doing that yeah and let's talk about Ostersons because their story is really interesting and probably the first time I kind of came across them was the work of Graham Potter what he did there and obviously he's come to the Premier League he's done I think very well with Brighton what what what's your thoughts of the club, but also of what Graham Potter did beforehand as well? I mean, that's totally what I was sold on. You know, that it's you know, in, 
in my time sort of uh, in the media, Ossersons had been a big story. You know, I, I was at uh, uh, the the uh, the Emirates for, for the game where they beat Arsenal that second leg. I watched that game. That was brilliant. Yeah, I took a great interest in it. It was, you know, it was a great story. Um, I'd read and, and watched everything I possibly could about them. And when I first spoke to Ian Birch and all, the, it was a manager at the time. You know, that's I was, I was sold on a, a club that was doing things differently. That you know that this. Uh, this ethos that they were they played foot, they great football they played it a certain way the things they did off the pitch with recruitment and also the stuff about the the, the, the gala that they have every, every, every end of every season where they have a big project that the whole the whole football team goal club work on mm-hmm. uh, it was all really interesting and, and, and fascinated me and so that was a big part of me going out there as well um, and it's and it, and it is a, it, it is and has been a special club and, and Graham had sort of six seven seasons to build that. And the problem that we had when I went in there was that we lost fourteen players mm-hmm. from that group. Who you know it's going to happen. You know the team has massive success. Players were getting sold for all over Europe to you know to league on in France uh, to. To bigger clubs uh, uh, all around Europe, so we, we we lost 14 players and brought in 12, and 12 players who were all under 24. And it was a big ask to to gel all those players together, no matter how good the players were and how much potential they had, you know, and to put them into this type of football that we were trying to play. Like I said, Graham had six years to, to develop this style of football, and Ian was brought in from his last job was at Viking Stavanger in Norway. And he had a reputation of playing exactly the same football, come from the same background as Graham. They came from ed, uh, university football, both of them coached in university football. They actually knew each other. So it was kind of like to bring in continuity mm-hmm. from, um, from Graham's era. And it was, yeah, yeah uh, for, for me going into a club like that and learning off the likes of Ian, because uh, Ian's he's a very good coach. Really educational for me, just again trying to play that way of football and uh, and, with, and with young players. It was, uh, all, and we've we've had lots of other obstacles in the way that it's been reported about. You know, the the, the chairman Daniel Schimberg has had to leave the club through some financial irregularities. The club's are real is in real massive financial uh, dire straits, uh, and we've had all that contempt with while having to try to keep this young side. In Alsvenskan, which we, we've managed to do over the, the past two seasons, so it's <laughs> I, I'm, I'm grateful for all the you know. There seems to be a massive thing. It feels like I'm a bit of a Jonas somewhere, you know, like we're going from club to club. Where things are, <laughs> there, there are problems. I have had good times in my career, <laughs> but it, it, all, all these the situations that you're thrown into, it's it puts you in great stead for for what happens in the future. It's character building, isn't it? It's totally, you know, and it's in the club now where Ian left about two months ago. He decided to leave the club to uh, to move on, and um, we have a new manager in now, Amir Rafshan, who's who's coming from. He's only thirty-three. New ideas, again, you know, he wants he wants to build the club again from almost from scratch. Mm-hmm. Almost seems to have come from the same sort of cloth as Nagelsmann in Germany. 
Well, yeah, exactly. And you know, Ian and uh, and uh, and, uh, and Graham Potter, the the people who have they're bringing fresh ideas into the game. Mm-hmm. It's by no means to say that they're they're uh, the that it's going to work, but it's worth it trying something yeah, different. Or, or they're, they're, they're revolutionary. Mm-hmm. They're still trying to, to 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 do things in their own way, in a new way, and it's um, it, it, you know sometimes it pays off, sometimes it, just, it doesn't pay off. But it's again, it's it's, try, it's about pushing the boundaries and, and not just doing things because that's the way we've always done them, or the way mm-hmm. that other people do them. And that's always been a, a, a biggest big thing in my career. It's about looking to do things differently how can we improve and to um, and and it goes back to the time again against like talk about Bruce Robillard Bruce is you know he was different I want to be different and it's the way I've always been and, and yeah. these people that I've been working with especially in the last few years like of Ian I'm here and, and, and even the, the the legacy of Graham Potter you know it's, it's brilliant for me because mm-hmm. you just want to learn all the time and to do things differently and, um, and, and from that point of view it's it's been really worth my time being in, in Sweden Are you surprised how well Graham Potter's doing at Brighton in the Premier League? Not at all not at all because we um, we st- even though he took um, two or three of his staff uh, to, first to Swansea now at Brighton with him um, we still had Brian Wake who ended up being our head of recruitment uh, and he was on the coaching staff at um, under Graham Potter. He was sort of one of the first team coaches and and, and took the under twenty ones as well. So through him, being able to to glean a lot of information and a lot of the, the sessions that that Graham used to do to to implement his uh, his ideas. And, and again, it's it's just fascinating just to to see that the detail that was got that was gone into uh, in de- developing. Not only that uh, style of play, but the, the sort of the team culture as well. And I think that um, you know it's, it's no surprise now that you know he goes to Swansea. It could have been a, a Sunderland job. It could have been um, they, they came out of the Premier League. It could have been a downward slide. You know he arrested that. Not only arrested that, brought in young players like Daniel James, who was you know went on to to That's Manchester United. He was nowhere near the first team before. Mm. Um, yeah. playing brilliant football and then obviously getting his moves and that's a brand of football not only the success he had at Osterson but the brand of football he's playing at, uh, at Swansea that's what got him the job at, um, mm. at Brighton what I love about what he's doing at Brighton is he's getting players like Trossard playing some great football Lamptey at fullbacks but next standard but what he's also done well David in my view is He's made them very tough to beat. I mean, they okay, they've lost Shane Duffy, but Lewis Dunk has been very solid in defence. Matt Ryan is, in my opinion, one of the best goalkeepers outside of the, the proverbial top six in England. Very, very solid side, Brighton. Yeah, they are. I was lucky enough in my, uh, in my time before, I went to Sweden, I spent a, a, a bit of time down in Brighton. I'm friends with the goalkeeping coach down there, Ben Roberts. So it's a, it was great for me to go down there and, and watch Brighton train under... Um, Chris Hewton. So I knew the infrastructure was there. The, 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 the club that's mm-hmm. it's geared up for to take the next step and um, and, and develop not only as a the infrastructure of the club but develop on, on the pitch and the, the identity that they want. Obviously, Dan Ashworth is in there now, and it was him that wanted Graham 
to come to the club and, and develop that identity as well. But you see this season, that the, the results haven't been great so far. They've had a lot of plaudits for the way they played against Chelsea and against Manchester United. You should have got someone against Manchester United, maybe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But to me, that what that is is that the, the philosophy's right, the way that he wants the players right. The only difference, and it's a big difference, is what you've got going forward. Mm-hmm. Now, you can outplay Manchester United, but when Man- Manchester United got like Martial, Rashford, Fernandez. You know, yeah, exactly. And all the rest, you know, they, they've made the difference in that team. Look at the, the, the outlay that uh, Chelsea have made this, this year in, in the attacking forces. You know, that's, that, that's going to be the difference at the, at the end of the day, you know, and yeah. until Brighton can can find those you know, those players who, uh, who, who uh, are going to make that difference. Mm-hmm. The players have got their likes of Neil, Neil, uh, Neil Mopey. Like good players and, and good at what they're doing and, and can be a success in the, in the Premier League. Yeah. Let's sort of head towards wrapping things up. Let's talk quickly about the Alsvenskan, the, the, the Swedish league, because as we're recording this on the 16th of October, Ostersunds are sitting mid-table, they're sitting ninth. I mean, looking at the league, Malmö are probably the, the team to beat most seasons, aren't they, in the Swedish league? Yeah, and they should be every year, simply because of the the finances that they've got on the, on the back of... It's actually off the back of selling uh, Zlatan to uh, to Ajax all them years ago. They, they, they could put that reinvest that money back in the side, but also um, invest the money off the pitch, and it's allowed them to have this big pot of money that they've got. And they should be champ- they should be champions every year. There's no two ways about it. But standard is very good. Mm-hmm. Last season it was it was a mad season last year where we had four teams who could all win the, the league on the last day of the season. What? Uh, so it was EIK, Jure Gordon, um, North Shopping, and and Malmo. They could all win the last game, the the league on the last day of the season. Jure Gordon eventually won it, but it was. Um, That's right, because they could have been a potential uh, tie for Celtic, but of course that never materialised. Yeah, I think Fern Varsh uh, beat them. Yeah. yeah. So it was. Um, yeah, it was. It was a bit of a mad season, and we start the season really well. First fifteen games, I think, was the best start the season the Sons had had, even under Graham Potter. And, uh, and again, you know, all the, the financial uh, problems that the club had and injuries, we lost another four players in the middle of the season, four or five players in the middle of the season. So it was the, the second half of the season was strong, but managed to stay up. And um, and then this season, we've uh, even with the change of manager, you know, we, we've lost two games out of the last fifteen. Um, it's so tight because as we as I said as we're recording this on the the sixteenth of October, there's just eight points covers Hacken in second. Hope I pronounced that okay. To you guys in Orebro who are tenth on thirty points, not a lot in it. No, there's not. You know, and if we can, we've we've um, we lost uh, the last game against IK narrowly. We, we shouldn't have lost it, but you know, if we can go on a run like we did uh, last month where we've we've won four or five games, then you know that puts us right up. Mm-hmm. Right up around the, the sort of top three spots, and it? it's of course it's, it's difficult to do, you know. But we're um, yeah, we're we're not doing badly at the moment. But it, like I said, it, it's a great standard, and there's loads of challenges in the in the league as well because we're one of the t- we're the one team who has to fly to every game mm-hmm. or when, when when we can because of the, the the COVID situation that some of the flights being cancelled. So then we're it's like six seven hour train journeys and. So we we have to do a lot. We have to do a lot of travelling every away game, but also you've got um, not all 
four teams playing grass, half the teams play on 3G. So, you know, you've got to alternate between that, which can change the way that you play as well. And like I said, there's a lot of good young talent still here that's, mm-hmm. that keeps getting cherry-picked. We sold a player, um, uh, Jordan, uh, Jordan Atakadiri, Nigerian, uh, under 21. He's, uh, we sold him to Lommel, which is part of the City Group in Belgium. Mm-hmm. We sold him for I think it was about 1.3 uh, million euros, and it's a great league for development talent. Mm-hmm. And, and unfortunately, that's the, the type of club that we've got become as well, where we've got to um, you know sustain our uh, our finances by uh, by selling players. Yeah, and yeah. We've got young sides. Probably in the last last two seasons, we've put out sides that have been the last the youngest combined eleven. In almost the last 20, 25 years, now Svenskan. Blimey, blimey. So it's um, yeah, it's it's always going to be a difficult to it's always going to be difficult to get a continuity for you know if you're all, always sort of like having a high turnover of players, but again, it's it's needs must. Yeah, absolutely. Well, for those who are listening, I hope you support Ostersunds and follow their progress in the Swedish league. I certainly will be from afar in Scotland. David, we're coming to the end of what has been a fascinating and terrific chat on Campbell's Wheels. Thanks for coming on the show. What does the future hold for yourself? Because hopefully fans will get back into stadia more numbers sooner rather than later. Hopefully coronavirus eases up. Hopefully, as I say, you get back to full health as soon as possible. I want to wish you again all the best in your recovery from COVID-19. What does the future hold for yourself? Well, at the moment we've got seven games left to this season. You know, and... Um Hopefully we can we can finish the season with a uh, in, in the same way that we we, we have done the we've been playing the last few months um, finish positively and I've still got another year left in my contract here over in Sweden um, so we'll we'll see what happens at uh, in December you know come the end of the season but it's again I'm, football's got its hooks back in me you know from the from the time that I, I took out you know um, to do my media stuff and you know. And that's exactly what I see for myself now. You know, every day is is just filled with learning and uh, and and everything that I love about football. Like I said about the analysis and and, and being part of something that's um, that, that's working towards a, a real clear identity and, mm-hmm. and a real focus and a real vision. And and that's what I found here at Ostersunds. And it's again as much as there's been a it's been a tumultuous time. It's it, it's great to be part of something that's you know, you know. I'm not playing, of course, I'm not. But and it's not the same as that. But to be involved in something that's part of a collective that's working towards something, it's a uh, it's a really special thing. That, and and I really enjoy it. It was something that was missing in my in, in my life. And, uh, yeah. yeah. This is something that I hopefully do for a long time, yeah. Well, let's hope so, and I, I really will follow your progress a lot more so now, having had this discussion. David, thanks for being a guest on Campbell's Fools. I've enjoyed our chat. Cheers, man. Well, listener, that brings us to the end of yet another episode of Campbell's Footballs. I hope this podcast was just what the doctor ordered. If you want to listen to previous shows or look out for future shows, follow Campbell's Footballs on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to other podcasts. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Campbell's Footballs. Search for me, StatoG91, on Instagram or other social media channels. But until then, until next time, I hope you enjoyed the crack and enjoy Campbell's Footballs. 
What a dangerous night